So what's holding you back? It actually ties in very well, this, this whole time of pandemic and, and our, our setbacks in our lives um, really ties into what I'd like to talk about this morning. Um, and the passage that I'll be talking about is John chapter 20. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 does tie in. Uh, it kind of complements what, uh, what I've been talking or what I'm going to be talking about, but John 20 is the whole passage, and uh, we'll, we'll dig into that in a moment. Um, what's holding you back? Blindness. As kids, we used to play blind man's bluff, where it was blindfolded and counted one, two, three, four, and whatever it went to. And other players would move away, and then at the end of whatever the counting was, they would stop. And then it would call out blind man, and the others would respond bluff. And by the sound of those echoes, they would try to find out who the other kids were. They could either tag them, of course, the people couldn't move. They had to stay on their feet. They, couldn't, they, they could either tag them or, or hold their faces or something and try to guess who they were. So there were a couple of variations of that game. Um, it was a great game for us as kids, uh, especially when you had obstacles in the field, like flagpoles and trees and seesaws and holes in the ground. That was before insurance companies required child safety. Oh, the good old days. I actually didn't much enjoy being it. Why? Because it depended too heavily on what I could not see. See, I depend on seeing. I love seeing things. Um, I love seeing things in front of me. In fact, I love the concrete stuff. I actually, when I was in high school, I loved math and science because that was the, that was the concrete stuff. Um, numbers, formulas, whatever, it made sense at the end. Why I'm a theologian? Oh, only God knows that. At heart, I actually trust my mind and my senses to know what is true. Um, what philosophers call rational empiricism. Just wanted to drop that bomb. Um, or simply, you've got to see it to believe it. And most of us, many of us, are actually rational empiricists, even though we may not use that term. The Gospel of John is about seeing. The word is used over a hundred times in its various forms in the Gospel of John, but, and the word believing is also used about 70 times in its various forms. There's something about seeing and believing that, that feels good and makes sense. John 1.34, Jesus says, I have seen and testify, uh, John says, I've seen and testify this about God's chosen one. John 3.3, 3, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. John 4.48, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. John 6.46, only he has seen the Father. John 9.39 is kind of the crux of the book of John, or one of them, it's close to the center, where a blind person sees Jesus and the sighted people don't. The irony John 11.40, you will see the glory of God. John 12.45, he who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. You're not just looking at the people you see or the person you see, Jesus, but you also see God the Father. John 14.17, the world does not accept the Holy Spirit, neither it sees him, that is Jesus, or knows him. John 16.16, 16, for a little while you will not see, then after you will see me. And John 17.24, Father, 
I want my disciples to see your glory. Those are just a fraction of the seeing passages in the book of John. As I've said, I have trouble seeing things or seeing through things, perhaps. On Good Friday, just over a week ago, I went to visit the graves of my parents, whom I love dearly. They have gone to be with the Lord um, in very short succession, 55 weeks apart in 2019 and 2020. As expected, their gravestone was not rolled away. The ground has settled, and presumably their bodies are in the place where we lowered them. Yet for over 60 years, mom and dad celebrated Easter, believing that Jesus is risen. They trusted in his promise for eternal life and that it would be theirs as well. In their final days, and they had a few final days, dad, about, I'd say, oh, two months or so, a month especially, and mom, about six days, in their final days, they were in a position of complete and utter surrender, complete and utter dependence for their life now and for the eternal life on Christ. They believed at that moment in something they could not see. If Good Friday, the day of Christ's death, was his ultimate test of trust in God when he said, into your hands I commit my spirit, then Easter, Easter is the reward for trusting in God. It's the blessing of God for those faithful saints. In John 20, we discover that kind of trust and different levels of trust, really, different kinds of discipleship that lead us up to those points and lead us through those points where we have to make those ultimate trusting decisions to, to trust in God for our life, for our death, and for our salvation. Sometimes seeing is believing, but in the moments of those crisis moments, sometimes you don't quite see. And the question is, do you believe then? There will be five types or five kinds of discipleship, and we'll, we'll go through these five people um, in John 20, so we'll do the first one. Um, the simple faith of the beloved disciple. Early on, the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Then she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they have put him. Not pushed him, thankfully. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight to the tomb, saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Here's an example of the beloved disciple 
and I would call this one simple faith. This is some of the great, you know, moments of our lives. Uh, Sometimes it is just you see and you believe. The beloved disciple here in John's gospel is an anonymous and intriguing disciple. Not quite sure who this person is. There's been much speculation. Some think it was the, the, uh, the writer of the, of the gospel of John. Others think it was maybe Lazarus or even James, the brother of John. And th- there's all sorts of semi-likely candidates, and it's um, actually puzzling. And I, I actually don't care that much who the, uh, who the beloved disciple is, other than that the disciple was beloved and that Jesus loved him, and I think that's all that matters. His name doesn't matter, actually. He appears at a few key times uh, with Jesus in his last days, specifically. He's there with Jesus at his last summer. At at certain crisis points in Jesus' life, the the beloved disciple is there. He's there in chapter 13, verse 23, at the Last Supper, and he asks Jesus, so who's going to betray you? And Jesus shows him who it's going to be. He's there with Jesus. He's the only male disciple, as far as the, the gospel writers say, that was there with Jesus at the cross. Everybody else had fled. And here's one beloved disciple at the cross, and Jesus entrusts his mother Mary to, to this beloved disciple. He's, he's then one of the first people also at the tomb in chapter 20, verse 2. Here he is. He outruns Peter, um, possibly a younger person, possibly me. I'm kidding. Um, he was at, then in chapter 21, verse 7, he's at the Sea of Galilee, and he recognizes Jesus first, even before Peter does. And then he stands on the side as Jesus tests Peter's love, and, um, and, and Jesus has something special for this beloved disciple that he says he's not going to tell him at this point. Did this beloved disciple, when he looked into the tomb, remember Jesus say in John 10, 28, I have the authority to lay it down, that is my life, and the authority to take it up again? That's what, what it looked like when, when the grave clothes look, look like they're just lying there as if he just passed right through. Peter enters. He sees the body. He sees the cloth around Jesus' head where it should have been. And yet, it doesn't say that Peter believed. It takes him longer. This beloved disciple looks in the tomb and believes. I envy beloved disciples who can, with simple faith, look at the evidence of what God is doing and just say, God's at work. I'm not quite that. Jesus said that his disciples would, would do something like this. John 12, 16, he says, At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done, done to him. It's, it took a while for some people like Peter, but, but then when the beloved disciple steps into the tomb, he believes his faith is remarkable, but it's still not quite there. I mean... It is remarkable. People of his day, there were the Sadducees, for example, that didn't believe in a resurrection. There were Pharisees who believed in a general resurrection, but not too many people or very few people believed that one person would just rise like this. This was a very unusual event. And yet he sees God at work there. He sees Jesus absent from the tomb, and he believes. And yet this beloved disciple still has a problem. 
Simple faith is simple faith, but it doesn't go far enough. It says that he didn't understand the scriptures. Notice, they still did not understand from the scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So he knew what had happened, but he didn't know what it meant. He knew what had happened, but he didn't know what it meant. He was blind to the work of God in, in pointing him throughout the Old Testament, throughout the scriptures, that this is what he was coming up to in the first place. This is what the whole Bible was leading up to. Later, the Apostle Paul, as we read earlier, thank you, Dalen, for reading that, uh, says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, For what I received, I passed on to you as first important, as first importance that Christ died for our sins, what? According to the Scriptures. For Paul, Jesus was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. Why were the Scriptures so important? Because the Hebrew Scriptures witnessed to the promises of God to send the Messiah, a suffering servant, Isaiah 53, that would be vindicated by God, and that would show the victory of God and the presence of God and the work of God in the new, in the new kingdom coming down. Everything was pointing to that. But because the beloved disciple was blind to what was happening in the scriptures, notice what he does. And the disciples went back to where they were staying. He goes home. Silent. Interesting. Let's go to the second person here. Mary Magdalene. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where I have put him. Or not where I put him, where you have put him. Thinks the gardener has taken the body. Okay, bit of irony there. And I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to the Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them, that, she, uh, that he had said these things to her. We move from simple faith to grieving faith. Grieving faith is a difficult kind of faith, just like other kinds of uh, difficulties with our faith. Earlier, Jesus had promised his disciples, very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn. While the world rejoices, you will grieve but your grief will turn to joy, John 16, 20. Now Mary Magdalene experiences that promise, that prediction. She experienced such a depth of grief, and it was so intense that she became blind to the very presence of the risen Lord standing right in front of her. Notice her grief in this, in this part of the story. Not one but two angels are in the tomb, and she doesn't notice anything unusual. Something is blinding her from what God is doing. Angels are a symbol in the Bible of God's presence when God is at work and wants to do something new. 
She couldn't see them. They didn't even startle her, it seems, at least not in, in this version of the story. She took this revelation of God and, and treated it as if she was just going to the market and, and trying to find some groceries. She was oblivious to the messengers. And when she turned around, she was oblivious to the gardener's identity too. Her blindness in grief prevented her from seeing Jesus in plain sight. John 10, 3 to 4, Jesus says, The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. Fortunately, even though Mary couldn't see, she could hear. And she was able to hear the master's voice, even though she couldn't see him right in front of her eyes. She passes the test. She recognizes her teacher and her Lord, and she becomes the first apostle commissioned by Jesus to proclaim his resurrection. She goes back to the disciples and says, I have seen the Lord. What a privilege. She had to move from hearing to seeing. Grieving faith. Seeing. Hearing. Confessing. What about the next type of faith here? This one's fearful faith of his disciples. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After this, after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, your sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Fearful faith. This is not the first time that the disciples have been fearful. In John 7, verses 12 to 13, Jesus is teaching at the Feast of Tabernacles under the watchful eye of the religious leaders. And the crowd in this time, and we're not sure if the disciples are there, but perhaps they are. Um, the crowd does not say anything about Jesus. They're wondering who this Jesus is. They're not saying anything for fear of what other people might think. Now on the evening of the resurrection day, the disciples are together behind locked doors for fear of the religious leaders. Their fear has paralyzed them, even though Mary Magdalene has already witnessed to them the presence of the risen Lord. And with Peter seeing the empty tomb, they are still prevented from moving forward. They're still paralyzed by the fear that holds them inside that locked room. They are prevented from a what's holding them back. A faithful response is what's not happening here because something is not clicking for them yet. And so the risen Lord appears to them and stands with his disciples and says, peace. Twice, in fact, he assures them, peace be with you. It's, a, it's an ancient Hebrew greeting. It's the kind of greeting that you would get with, with uh, a proclamation of, of victory. Things, all things are well here. 
In a sense, the Messiah has come. Peace. And so when the disciples see Jesus and his hands and his side, the evidence that he'd been crucified and that he's now risen, they respond by seeing and, and being overjoyed. Earlier, Jesus had said, in a little while you will see me no more, then after a little while you will see me. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy, John 16, verses 16 and 20. The appearance of Jesus turns into a commission for the disciples. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. On the one hand, that sounds exciting. Rejoice. On the other hand, that sounds like more fear. How did the Father send the Son into the world? Suffering? Death? But it sounds empowering because it's as the Father has sent me. Because the Father was always with the Son. The Father did not forsake the Son. The Father's presence is with his disciples and he will continue that ever-life-giving, that eternal life-giving work that he started in Jesus and that he was doing in Jesus. He will continue that through his disciples to the unbelieving world. A book I once read, uh, recently read called Jesus Continued, it talks about, would you rather have Jesus, it asks the question, would you rather have Jesus with you? Or would you rather have the Holy Spirit in you. And, and the point he was making is that Jesus could only be in one limited place and time in Israel, but the Holy Spirit can be with us and in us at all times. And so it's actually better to have the Holy Spirit with us than to have Jesus beside us as, as the disciples had. And so as God breathed into Adam the breath of life in Genesis 2, now Jesus breathes the gift of the Spirit upon his disciples and gives them new life, gives them the Holy Spirit to indwell them and fill them with living water that they would share. And so, fearful disciples filled with the Spirit become fearless followers, not forgiving the faithless fools, but forgiving the fellows and females who follow the footsteps of the firstborn from the dead to the finale. It's my attempt at lame poetry. Fearful to fearless. But there's one person missing. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, did not, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where, his nails, uh, where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, which happens to be this Sunday, the Sunday after Easter, the disciples were in the house again. And Jesus, and sorry, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 
I'm calling this one senseless faith. With a little question mark besides senseless. Senseless meaning this kind of senses. Eyes, ears, touch. Thomas wants a sensible faith. The one that he can, he can, he can tangibly touch and feel and see. Thomas is not only blind because he has not seen Jesus, but he is also deaf because he's not listening to the witness. But Elsie, he lacks, his, he lacks touch. He's out of touch, you might say, with Jesus. And so his faith needs an extra boost. Thomas, as we've known from the Gospel of John, appears in the Gospel of John four times. When Lazarus dies, Jesus calls his disciples to go and visit. And Thomas sees the possibility of death. That is the possibility that, that they might even die when they go there. But he's willing to go. There's a little bit of faith there, at least. In John 14, when Jesus speaks to the disciples about going to the Father in heaven, Thomas is looking for a street address. He, he doesn't quite get what Jesus is doing. He, it's still very physical to him. John 20, here, when the disciples see Jesus, Thomas is not there, and so he demands to see and touch Jesus for himself. The climax of the story comes when Thomas really sees Jesus one week later. One week later. And Jesus just gently scolds Thomas and offers his hands and his side. Is Thomas a stubborn doubter? Is Thomas a cynical doubter? Been there, done that kind of doubter? Is Thomas a sincere doubter? I don't quite know. In fact, the text does not use the word doubt at all, even though your NIV says doubt. That's how it's interpreted. In the Greek, it literally says, don't become unbelieving. In other words, Thomas had been a believer in his own kind of way, and he had been following Jesus as a, as a disciple in his own stumbling way. And Jesus basically gently scolds him and says, don't become an unbeliever. What? Difficulties in our lives losses, world weariness, experiences sometimes jade us. So that even sincere followers of Jesus sometimes lose that desire to believe. You get tired. And so finally, you kind of go into those, that been there, done that kind of an approach, and you say, you know what? i got to see it to believe it because I'm, I'm a bit, you know, I've been taken a few too many times. And I wonder if Thomas was like that. Recently, my granddaughter, who is teaching me all about um, online video games, which I am now a secondary expert, uh, told me about an online video game that she was playing where sometimes players ask to make something called trust trades. So somebody who asked, recently asked her to make a trust trade, what happens is, will you trust me? And so that you trade with the other person, and then you trust them to give you something in return. Well, some player had asked her to trust trade for her very rare albino bat. 
her prized possession. It's, I guess, really important. Uh, she agreed, and she lost the bat and received nothing in return. She was devastated for a week. And weeks later, she's still telling me about it. And she said, I'm not going to do trust trades anymore. That's Thomas. I wonder if Thomas had lost a few too many trust trades. But look at Thomas when he does see and when he does hear and when he does touch. He makes the statement that nobody else does in the whole book of John. He does keep believing after meeting the risen Jesus. And he says what nobody else says in the Gospel of John. Thomas actually becomes the faithful disciple by proclaiming not only that Jesus is Lord, okay, Mary Magdalene had already done that, but that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That is, Jesus Christ is God. He is God in the flesh doing what God, only God can do. My Yahweh and my Elohim, my Lord and my God. The two main names for God in the Old Testament. It is the greatest confession of Christ in the Gospels. Something that the Gospel writer has been working on from John chapter 1 to this very point. He's trying to get people to say this. And finally, the most unlikely disciple is the one who has the highest confession. That is so cool. Because I feel a bit like Thomas. That's more like me. Andrew Lincoln, commentary, says this, Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed their testimony. So Thomas didn't quite get that. Sorry, I'm jumping ahead. Now it's our turn. <laughs> the next one. It says, uh, verse 29, Jesus said, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book, but these are witness that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is blessed faith. The future disciples, there's the image of Paul falling off his horse on the Damascus Road. Personally, I have not seen the risen Jesus. The closest thing I had was a trip to Israel. And uh, as we were entering the garden tomb, I looked into the tomb and it was like the, that beloved disciple. I looked into the tomb and my heart actually jumped when I got into that tomb and got into the position of seeing this is where Jesus lay until the tour guide said that this was not the place. Boom. And then the next day, we went to the Church of the Sepulchre in Jerusalem, and the guide excitedly told us that this is the very place where Jesus, he says, Jesus, notice right here, he went whoosh. He did use the word whoosh. I have witnesses. And this is where Jesus resurrected. Now, others say, well, actually, it was around the back there, and so on. Okay. I have not seen it. I've seen a couple of tombs that they claim. Now, Andrew Lincoln said, Blessed are those who have not seen and, and have believed these testimonies. This underscores the authority and reliability of the disciples' witnesses. Those who will later come to believe will do so because they have the testimony, both of the one who saw the grave clothes in the empty tomb 
and of those who saw the risen Lord himself. On the basis of such testimony contained in the narrative, they too will be able to echo Thomas's confession of faith. Grant Osborne adds, as the Beatitudes of, Je- of Matthew 5, this means that God pours out his blessings in a special way to those who find faith even when they have no opportunity to see and to walk with Jesus. That's not easy. So what kind of faith is this? This is a blessed faith, but it doesn't stop there. It's also a persevering faith. And I'm saying that to us who believe. I would even call it an adaptive faith. And I'll explain that in a moment. I'm almost done. Jesus walked and lived, and ate, and wept, and slept, and preached, and healed, and prayed, and died. The disciples saw Jesus up close for three years, but in all of this, even his disciples were blind to the presence of God in Jesus. The disciples had seen Jesus like many people see Jesus. They see Jesus like a window, like the window that I see at the back there. They look at the window sometimes, but they don't look through the window. They just see the smudges and the dirt and maybe even the posters on the, on the window, but they don't actually look through to see the beauty beyond it. Thomas and what Jesus calls the blessed disciples are the ones who look through Jesus to see God the Father's eternal life working through him. Seeing, that's a gift of the Holy Spirit. That's a gift of God. But these are written. That you may believe, it says, Actually, in the Greek, it says that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by continuing to believe, you may have life in his name. It's perseverance. Throughout the gospel, many people became initial believers, but their initial faith proves insufficient without perseverance. There's many examples. Chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. Chapter 8, verse 30, verse 59. Judas, and on. John's goal here, the gospel's goal, is not simply initial faith, although that's really important, but persevering faith. Persevering discipleship. John's purpose is to address believers at their early stages of discipleship and encouraging them to persevere through the later stages and the next stages, through the ups, the downs, the weaknesses, the strengths, the obstacles that we face. John's purpose is to invite us to persevere as beloved disciples. So, have you ever heard the expression blind as a bat? While bats are blind, they thrive in the world quite apart, uh, quite well actually, because of their echolocation. They've learned to adapt. There are 1,240 species and hundreds of millions of bats. Blindness hasn't seemed to be an obstacle to them. They're still multiplying and doing just fine. In fact, blind persons have learned to adapt as well with canes, but also with echolocation. There's a 
cool YouTube video, just watch them sometime, where a guy does echolocation, and he stands in the middle of a playground, and he tells you where the slide is. He'll tell you where the houses are down the street. He'll tell you how far, basically how far away they are just by clicking his tongue. He's learned how to adapt. And I think sometimes we rely on a certain kind of faith in Jesus so long that when new situations come along that we don't know how to adapt, and then we lose. We have, okay. I can't see anymore, or I can't hear anymore, or I can't touch anymore. What now? Jesus says, blessed are the disciples that adapt. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, paraphrasing. But that's what every single one of these disciples had to do with the resurrection. It was such a landmark event, they had to adapt. There were no categories. It blew them away. So, with our lives of faith, as time goes on, Maybe our vision will fail. Maybe we'll experience losses or weaknesses or questions or failures or broken relationships or sickness or financial failure. And Jesus is calling right now for persevering faith that will adapt in new situations. Some years ago, we were driving home at Christmas time uh, from Manitoba to Saskatchewan when, and when a, a, an amazing, a, a huge storm hit between uh, Regina and Saskatoon. The storm was so thick, that, and the visibility was basically zero. So what do you do? Stop? Of course not. We tucked in behind a semi who had a better perspective than we did, and we followed that semi down the road. All I needed to do, I didn't need to know where Saskatoon was. All I need to know is where those two lights were. You adapt. What's going on here? You see, I do have trust issues like many of us do. Put me on the back of a double bike with Luann steering and you'll see that I have trust issues. But that's exactly what God is calling us to do, to be on the back of a double bike with an invisible rider steering on the front. That's the Holy Spirit. That's Jesus. The life of faith is based on dependence and trust, not answers, on faithfulness, not certainty, on believing, not seeing. And slowly, I'm coming to peace with that kind of a situation. Elevation does a song called Graves to Gardens, which is something that talks about this kind of trust. You turn graves into gardens. Do you believe that? You turn bones into armies. You turn seas into highways. You're the only one who can. You turn mourning into dancing. You give beauty for ashes. You turn shame into glory. You're the only one who can. That's faith. Dear God, as we come to you this morning, looking at the various trials and errors of your disciples and coming to faith. I pray for those that have a hard time coming to faith that you would show enough of yourself to them through your window, through your word, or through your, your son Jesus, or through your Holy Spirit, that they would, they'd be able to see through their clouded, their clouded worlds. But for those of us who have been walking with you for a while and who've had some trust issues, shall we say. 
pray that you would help us to keep on believing and to adapt to the new tests of faith that we meet each day, each week, each month, each year. Thank you. May we be blessed to do it. Amen.